If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Zeck and I'm joined in office today by a very special guest. Uh, I'm talking to Anne Graham, who is the executive director of Texans for the Arts, which is an organization that's been around for a long time. It has kind of a lengthy history, but uh, Anne has been with the organization for about 10 years now. And uh, we're going to talk about arts advocacy. We're going to talk about where Anne came from in her own history. And we're going to talk a little bit also about uh, how you, our listener, if you want to get involved in advocating for the arts in your local municipality, in the state of Texas, nationally, how you could do that. Just kind of some entry steps as to um, learning about how you can advocate for your community and what you believe is important, especially focused on the arts. So Anne, welcome. Thank you very much. That was a very kind opening, and I am very excited to be here. I am a glass tire follower and really appreciate the work that you do to elevate the presence and the importance of arts all across the state um, as you as you as you travel and also you know get get to see so much of what the other average people don't get to get out and see so it's really it's really fun to have your interpretation on that um, I do hope that by the time people are done listening to this it's not if they're interested in getting involved in advocacy it's how can I get involved with advocacy because our lifeblood at Texans for the Arts really is about how do we make the world a better place and our milieu happens to be the arts. We know the power of the arts to transform. We know that the arts are essential to our lives and how do we bring that passion and commitment and to us no-brainer, how do we bring that to the fore so that citizens can get engaged, artist leaders and artists can get engaged and elected officials and decision makers get engaged. It's really about building a relationship between all of these people to help bring the issue of how do we make the world a better place. So we're going to circle back to that. But before that, I want to give our readers and also, I mean, myself, I'm interested in your background. We've talked for a very long time over emails and everything, but this is the first time we're actually sitting down across the table from one another. So I want to know about your background. Like before you moved to Texas, you moved to Texas in 1994. Before that, what were you doing? Where were you? Um, Well, it's interesting as I have evolved into the advocacy world in this career with Texans for the Arts. Uh, my mother tells me that I was advocating as soon as I could speak. <laughs> That's a very nice way to say what she actually means. That's a nice way to say you make your mind heard. Uh, love you for that. Um, so I guess I have been speaking up pretty much my whole life. And I can think back to things in my childhood, like one of the very first Earth Days, um, not to age myself, but one of the very first Earth Days where I helped start an ecology club. And I got involved in my community, um, you know, with recycling and making cloth uh, lunch bags and, you know, doing all these things, again, to make my community a a cleaner, better place. Um, 
certainly when I was that age, I had no idea that I was advocating, that I was getting involved. You know, if I went to talk to a city council meeting or something like that to talk about the ecology, no one ever called it that. Uh, but here I was, lo and behold, doing that. The other thing I was doing as a, as a young um, growing up was uh, I was a classical cellist. And it's interesting, as I got more and more involved in the arts, people would say, are you an artist? And I'm like, no, I'm not an artist. I don't have that background. But I work in the advocacy realm. It's like, oh, I played cello for 25 years. You know, so <laughs> I... I think people don't tend to think of musicians as artists for whatever reason. It's like the words, are you an artist, means someone slaving away in their studio, like making charcoal drawings. But it's more like, I feel like a lot of times when people ask that, especially around the arts in general, it's like, are you creative in some way, shape, or form is what they really mean. Right. And I have very little evidence, other than I still have a cello, but I have very little evidence like of pictures of me as a young uh, youngster playing cello, but it was very much a part of my life um, and and continues to. I, I will, con- full confession, put it down for about 20 years with, with, when ch- with children um, underfoot, but uh, and I've now actually picked up classical guitar. That's another part of the story, but, but certainly uh, playing the cello has had an impact on my life and my love of music. Um, also, uh, um, well, so I got, you know, into, into middle school. I was still involved in, in cello there. Um, actually, the switch to university was when I sort of put the cello down and I picked up biology and botany. I'd always been interested in plants. So I ended up after uh, a little bit more than four years at University of California at Santa Cruz where banana slugs lived. Um, we are banana slugs was the, was the motto or the um, mascot of the university. Uh, I became, again, very interested in um, sciences and graduated with a degree in biology. After, after I graduated from university and I, I continued actually with my thread in the botanical and biological world by working at the University of California uh, of Los Angeles, their botanical gardens for two years, two years prior to moving back east with my husband where we both started graduate school. He started graduate school at Harvard um, doing a PhD in um, biochemistry and molecular biology. And I didn't know a soul in Massachusetts, um, but saw an ad in the paper for a cello audition for an orchestra. And I called him up, set up an audition, uh, certainly had brought my cello with me in the car from California to Massachusetts and uh, got a seat in an orchestra. And it was an orchestra at the time called the Mystic Valley Orchestra, and now it's called the New England Philharmonic. And that was my introduction to kind of the arts world in uh, Massachusetts. And what was so wonderful about that is that it was a, again, Boston has, you know, major music schools, so you have lots of students who are looking for opportunities to play. And the New England Philharmonic was an amazing orchestra of all volunteer players, a lot of students from the universities, but also um, citizens who were just talented, who music and the arts were part of their daily life. We did a concert series, and there wasn't really a lot of volunteerism, and it wasn't a lot to help to do all that and I saw opportunity and I was like oh I can do this I can run a concert I can uh, find a third you know a second bassoonist or something or I can um, you know help order music from the music library I can help raise money there's nobody calling themselves manager so I'll call myself the manager um, and and I will say now 35 almost 35 years ago um, the New England Philharmonic is continuing to thrive and I can't tell you how rewarding it is to be part of an organization that I helped grow and stay 
stabilize. I left. I lost track of it. And it is thriving today. And it is doing this really innovative work that we started way back when I was with it, which was to have an orchestra in residence program at the Framingham State University. So our orchestra went out and did concerts in Framingham. And we also had a a composer-in-residence program. So Small World, one of the many pieces that we commissioned, was by Rob Keir, a composer who now is in uh, Eugene, Oregon, and is a a composition teacher in Oregon. And he has been commissioned a number of times by Consperare, which is based, of course, in Austin, but is a national uh, Grammy um, Award-winning choral group, chorus. Uh, And just, you know, so interesting to see these kind of, and I saw him recently, I ran into him in Austin going, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, I'm doing another commission, right? So I love seeing this kind of intersection that has happened throughout my life as well, just being sort of in the right place at the right time. Anyway, I played with that orchestra and managed it and ultimately called myself president of the board because there wasn't anybody calling themselves that. Um, and I recently, again, I, I my husband found a, a coffee mug that says New England Philharmonic validating this kind of, oh, my gosh, this group is really, really th- thriving. Mm-hmm. So that was a very kind of rewarding experience and, again, sort of pulled me more towards the arts. I was also hired pretty much out of a master's degree of arts administration from Leslie University um, by an organization called First Night, First Night in Boston. First Night was a New Year's Eve celebration that was started by a group of artists in 1976, the bicentennial, about let's tram- what if artists transformed our cities? No stages, no artificial claptrap, but artists ha- rappelling off of buildings, artists appearing in storefront windows, uh, a parade, fireworks, just the all kind of raw, creative, temporary, site-specific work. Um, And I got hired out of my master's degree to be a co-producer with that. No other experience. I just remember my first day on the job going, okay, this is September 1st. Here's 32 art, you know, venues. We've got 112 artist contracts. And gosh, by December 31st, because it was a New Year's Eve celebration, (laughs) I have to put this all together. Everyone has to be paired up. This has to be organized. It has to happen. It has to all go off. It has to, it's it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And and, uh, that's kind of been what, what life is about you you can plan you got a deadline and you have to back everything out to that but that was my first experience of sort of sitting there going they're putting trust in me I mean it was a small team we had executive director a second or an assistant director uh, outdoor producer and an indoor producer I was the indoor producer so basically like taking a you know chamber ensemble and putting it in the, the Lutheran church I mean there was all these things and there's four musicians and they need a green room and they need water and they need all these things and then multiply that yeah. um, and I love loved the jigsaw puzzle aspect of that and um it, to this day the the event in Boston has continued it still exists in a very 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 different way but that was my introduction to production mm-hmm. uh, i mean yes i'd produced orchestra concerts but it was a little bit different um that the, this was the public was coming in mass i mean even my first year there's like 400,000 people that are coming on the streets of yeah. Boston uh, that that was my baptism by fire job i continued to do that all the way until Move, moved to Massachusetts in 1994. So I did that almost 10 years. Or moved to Texas. Excuse me, moved to Texas. Yeah. Moved to Texas. Um, so that was a critical plane point. There was also a group I helped create called Reclamation Artists. And you may know about the big dig in Boston, which was the suppression of the freeway, the, and which is now lovely with you know grass on top of it. But the, there were these giant mounds of dirt that uh, were from the digging of the tunnel, and they just piled they, meaning the, the big dig people. And a group of artists um, from the museum school, actually, 
Um, Eggs, Harry's, and Liar's Hater were some of those, and Joan, uh, Joan Brigham. And we just occupied those with temporary art. We would like just, you know, students would come down. We'd sort of give them the parameters. I don't think we signed any legal agreements on, you know, public safety. Mm-hmm. And they were guerrilla, and they were really fun and spontaneous. And that perpetuated my love of temporary site-specific work. So, um, so we I, we did other things like that. So I was managing the orchestra. First night in Boston was full time part of the year, part of the year, um, part time part of the year, uh, helping form reclamation artists. Working with another artist named Jerry Beck and the Revolving Museum, sort of helping him incorporate that. So dabbling all around. Mm-hmm. Um, come 1994, uh, my husband graduated from got his PhD and did a postdoc. And we moved to Texas because he got a job as a professor at University of Texas at Austin. Hence, we're moving to a state that I have no – I don't know a soul. I have a one and a three-year-old, and I don't know a soul in the state of Texas. And he has – my husband has a job. So um, he gave me the name of two artists, Madeline Irving and um, uh, Virginia Fleck. Uh, Virginia Fleck and those were two women that I sort of called up and instantly became friends and my opening to the art sector in Austin Um, because I didn't know anybody and wanted to get involved I volunteered for their cultural the city of Austin's cultural contracts program which is their hotel occupancy tax funding and I served for two years on the dance panelist and I had had some dance background further past back in my Cambridge days so I volunteered for the cultural contracts and I did it for the dance um, and I went to see every single dance company who was applying just so I could get to know the field. And that's how I met just all the wonderful dancers, who, many of them who are still dancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly Ballet Austin with Cookie Ruiz and Asia Gray with Tapestry. And, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I still, you know, so value and believe in those relationships that I now are, are almost 30 years old. And then after a two-year tenure with that, I joined the Art in Public Places panel and served on that for six years and chaired it for two years as well. And that's Austin's? That's Austin's. Two, yeah. it, it is now 2%. We went through the legislative process to get it from 1% to 2%. Yeah. This is the power of lobbying. This was going to meet with all your city council members to make change. Um, and that was just, that was a really, that was my introduction to public art. Um, Americans for the Arts used to have a public art track, and they used to have their pre-conference, the public art pre-conference, and I used to religiously go to that. I mean, to me, that was the, that and forecast, the public art review out of uh, Minneapolis. Those were just really, really important, those as a document and those as a conference to come together and to learn more about the public art world. Again, uh, you know, non-temporary but permanent artwork is amazing and wonderful, and there's so many examples of where it's just so successful. But I really have a soft spot yeah. for temporary public work because you can do things that you don't really have to like them necessarily, and not everybody has to like them, but you have to have a discussion about them. Um, and it, there's not that permanency of like once it's there, you're s- I don't want to say stuck with it because sometimes these are really well placed, and uh, but it was an opportunity to sort of to to sort of look at permanent at versus the the temporary work. And again, there's that that kind of soft spot. So I did that for a number of six years, and then I started doing other consulting. And then I was actually invited to start a first night in Austin, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, led to first night Austin twenty. I have to think back to the year, 2006, so it was December 31st, 2005, and it was an amazing celebration of the arts in the city of Austin for anybody who was there and remembers there were over 100,000 people who showed up on the first day, and it was 
deeply rewarding to me to see Austin just come to life through the arts. I still, there are people who come up to me who say, I was part of that event. You know, there was a project called Bread. And like I woke up and there was a loaf of bread outside my front porch. And it told me, this is Jacqueline Pryor is the artist, told me to come to the corner of Ninth and Congress wearing white with my loaf of bread. How could I not? <laughs> you know, 2,000. Yeah, I mean, I think there were 2,000 loaves of bread were made by Texas French Bread, distributed. with a, There was a poem and this invitation. And over 200 people showed up on that street corner on December 31st wearing white with their bread to break bread as part of the community. It was a marvelous piece, just, you know, a marvelous piece, the heart and soul of the arts. So um, that that was just one of so many things that were happening that literally were transformational. I still have people who just say that was the closest I've ever felt as really being part of a true community. Mm-hmm. Very, very powerful experience. And to this day, if I walk down Congress, my mind picks out, you know, the sculpture that I can see here by Barna Cantor, or my mind picks out, you know, the Segway dance performance that went on over here, or where the dancers repelled with flames uh, from Luke Zavisky projections with people in tuxedos, you know, coming down off the line, what is now the Lion Hotel. And I mean, there's just like... It was so fun. I could go on and on. But it, it was not about me. It was about how this, how important this was for the community. Yeah. Um, the, I, I, for various reasons, uh, I stepped away from that, that after the first year. There was a second and a third year for a while. And now it, it no longer exists. The city of Austin does a New Year's Eve celebration called any New Year or called any Arts New Year, I think, um, for Austin or Austin New Year. So that was kind of how I ended up sort of really cutting my teeth in the arts also in Austin. And then I started to do other um, other events as well and consulting primarily. Um, and just getting to know the arts community in, in Austin. I did not travel much around the state. I didn't have a familiarity with the state. We didn't have any family or, or we didn't have friends who lived in other cities other than Austin. So um, it wasn't until I took this job on that I really started to discover Texas um, and one of the organizations that I've been really close with the whole time I've been here is Texas Folklife. And I thought, well, if I'm in a state that I'm not familiar with, what better way to kind of learn its essence than through folklore and folklife? Mm-hmm. So I've been a big supporter and um, was just here a couple weekends ago for the Accordion Kings and Queens concert at Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just really value that kind of, that was one of my early perspectives on the arts and uh, in Texas. And, and the, the, so the very many things from, you know, culinary to music to wrought iron work to mm-hmm. storytelling, um, radio broadcasts, just so much. So so for any, any of our listeners who aren't aware of Texans for the Arts or aren't aware of what you all do, what's your elevator pitch? Texans for the Arts, the statewide arts advocacy organization, uh, we mobilize and advocate on behalf of increasing the public investment in the arts. And that may even sound a little obtuse. We have a two organizations, Texans for the Arts and Texans for the Arts Foundation. We have a 501c3. We have a 501c4. We are a lobbying organization that uses the tools that are available to us to change minds about why the arts are so important and to enlist public support, political support for increasing the, the public investment in the arts. And that is both 
changing minds uh, philosophically about why the arts are so important, uh, the intersection of the arts with so many other parts of our daily life, um, which wasn't the story 20 years ago, but is at the forefront of conversation now. I mean, art does not exist in isolation. Um, so for the almost past 10 years, we've been growing an organization and I think really focusing our attention, I know from a work perspective, on the decision-making sort of pathways. The two primary financial decision-making are the Texas legislature, your elected state senators and your elected state representatives um, who are making decisions. The 88th session just ended. Um, the veto period ended on June 18th, I believe it was. Um, so we've got two pathways. We have the legislature that's making decisions through the budget process. Um, and then we have tax policy, which you're all very familiar with, too, in, in certainly in Houston and in all the, all the cities, is the hotel occupancy tax. Mm-hmm. That's tax policy. So that nobody's voting on that in terms of, you know, dollars and cents. Um, but they are, and we did, we just passed a bill this last session, very excitedly, um, Senate Bill 1420, which was a reporting bill and reporting and transparency bill. This was built on the heels of a bill we passed a couple years ago that we wasn't as comprehensive, so we brought it back and made it more comprehensive. I'm really proud of it, and that's working closely with our relationship with the Texas Hotel Lodging Association. And that is the the, tex- the largest source of public funding for the arts, that and, and just wanting to protect what we say, protect Chapter 351 of the Texas Tax Code. Tell us a little bit about that bill. Why was that bill important, or this bill that just got passed yeah. in the most recent session? What that bill requires is that municipalities must file an annual report with to the comptroller's office, the Texas State Comptroller's office, that shows the rate, the tax rate, which is technically set by the state, but you can get different levels if you go to the legislature and ask. But primarily, well, the state is definitely a 6% fixed amount. Municipalities are 7%, so they can go up to 7%. Um, that's that's the, the piece of the pie, or the, the tax rate. And then um, the actual piece of the pie up to 15%, I know I should have a little pie di- diagram here, up to 15% of that 7% is what the cities can use for the arts. Um, so what was so important is we will have uh, every year, this is an annual reporting and it happens in February. So by February of 2024, next year, we will have hopefully a list of all of the cities across the state, the tax rate, and how they're spending that. What are the nine allowable uses? They are the city, you know, convention center, building convention centers, um, convention and visitors bureau, so communication, marketing for for murals, uh, transportation to get people to uh, conferences. They're really, they started with the convention industry really being kind of a tourism impactor. Um, there's sports facilities and rodeos, there's the arts, there's historic preservation. I'm forgetting one other thing in there, but it's the arts that we're very interested in and a a good partnership with preservation as well, because often there's an intersection with art. There can be an intersection with arts in that. Mm -hmm. So, so why is that important? That's important because that gives us, it helps us paint a picture of what is happening around the state and where we want to target work with communities to make sure that they understand that they can use up to 15% for the arts mm-hmm. and ha- what kind of impact they may have on, on your community. So the kind of programs that we do are things like our regional meetings where we have 
for they they've been historically started in COVID, so they've been Zoom. But this year we're hoping to start doing them in person again, and that is like not just looking and listening as to what they need, but who's using hotel tax and how are they using it, and how have you seen the the impact of investing in the hotel tax make a difference in your community? Mm-hmm. And there are communities all over Texas that are doing amazing things mm-hmm. with hotel tax as well as, and I can get to the appropriations in a minute. So it is a very very important part of our arts arts economy here with small towns you still many 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 of them still just have like maybe one hotel or two hotels but that doesn't preclude sort of the creative use of that and especially post uh covid where tourism is now really making a comeback i think i think there's also a new appreciation covid isolated us so much but what did we do to to thrive or to stay alive was really without everybody sort of calling it arts, it was. I mean, we were like, we're reading, we're watching movies, we're listening to podcasts, we're, you know, we're making a little more room in our apartment to dance or to sing, or you're dusting off an old instrument, or you're starting a hobby. I mean, there's all this creativity and that, that started in that. And I think people are still looking at ways to, you know, now that we're, well, we're living with COVID still, but, um, you know, what, what are ways that we can actually you know, use that. So I don't know if that answered your question, yeah. but. Well, I have to say, I think out of COVID also, I mean, we've definitely seen this in Houston and I wouldn't be surprised if other Texas cities, um, there's a parallel, but in Houston, because of the crunch, uh, because of the economic crunch that COVID caused, we saw um, kind of a renaissance in artists, people who work for organizations, people who are artists themselves becoming interested in arts public policy more uh, becoming more frequently interested in it and also just more involved in advocacy in general i think um, p- part of this was the the gap in hotel occupancy taxes because oftentimes they came immediately in and went immediately out so obviously when travel was restricted because of covid there were no uh, funds coming in for hot taxes, so then nothing could go out. It's like, no, it's not that anyone was hoarding money or anything. The money literally wasn't there to be paid. So I think that um, crunch caused a lot of people to be like, wait a second, what does this actually mean? Where is the money coming from? How can we get more of it? How can we safeguard it against the future? Which, you know, if you're using a percentage tax, you kind of can't do to an extent because it always is fluctuant and dependent. Um but I, I feel like we've seen a little bit of a just a resurgence in Houston in in general interest in policy, which I feel like is something like oftentimes we uh, individual artists or organizations are used to applying for grants or kind of trying to suss out these opportunities. But understanding where they actually come from and how they're dictated is Uh, it's harder to do. It's why you all exist. But for just a a normal person trying to figure out the source or anything, it's uh, it's harder to do and it can be obfuscated a little bit by the bureaucracy of government. Well, two important examples that are Houston-centric. One of them is two weeks ago, the announcement of the ARPA, the $5 million that's going to be allowed to be used. And these are ARPA funds that came to the city of Houston. That's American Rescue Plan. American Rescue Plan Act, ARPA. Yeah, ARPA. Um, And you had 
a whole group of artists, an arts organization and arts leaders. Uh, I'm proud to say all of the members of the Texas Commission on the Arts Cultural Districts that are represented, the seven that are represented in, in Houston, were active in this, along with other arts activists. So my hat's off to all of those. Um, and that original proposal to the city, I think it was submitted in August of 2021, and almost two years later came the final you know, grant award for $5 million. There was a lot of interest in, as you saw, and experienced and witnessed, um, and the meetings and things that were held as they were advocating. They were crafting you know, white paper and data analysis. And it is a full-blown proposal and a lot of work within the city council for artists to speak to their representatives. So you want to know how to get involved right now? Um, the most important thing you can do is make sure that the people who represent you know you. Uh, know you're involved in the arts, know that the arts are important, not just to the city of Houston, of course, but also beyond. Um, and that doesn't cost you anything. Human time, it costs you. But there's also something to get, get very excited and get very passionate. And you don't have to go alone, right? The, bring your other friends and the artists and just make sure that you are taking time. This is based on trust and it's based on human relationships. The simplest thing. And I, I can't overstate that. This, I don't want to say it's not rocket science what we do, but it is about building a relationship with an elected official who's making votes at the municipal or the state or the federal level, and you have the power to influence that through voting elections. You don't like what's happening? We know whatever your issue is that elections are a key. So that's, that, that's one thing that's really important to think about. But the arts are, as our lobbyist reminds us, she's like, you've got the best stuff to share, right? Take them to a show. Take them to a gallery. Take them to a public celebration. Um, they may not accept your invitation, but so at least let them know these things are happening. So they see the magnitude. Yes, the best thing is to try to get them. Um, and they can bring their staff. And um, I mean, that that is the most, just pepper them with the information of what you're doing. Again, you may not, you may not see them. They may not come. But make sure their staff, they that you sign up on their social media. These is, you you know you put out a newsletter. You send them a press release. You make sure that it, none of us have extra times. So like today on my list, it says number one, I'm going to advocate. It's like, well, knock that off the thing. I'll do that tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But if it says it says I'm going to write a press release or I'm going to do a social media post, there you go. There's two opportunities for you just to say, okay, I'm going to make sure that this press release goes to my state. Uh, senator or my state representative yeah. that didn't that didn't that cost you one email of time not a oh my gosh I've got to go if you're doing a you know some sort of a postcard or you're doing a mailing or um, you're doing a fundraising I mean anything that just sort of puts your name your experience and your impact and that you're in their uh, district I know that when I make visits with legis to, to legislators offices um, I always bring a constituent I mean there's a good chance that they're not really interested in me or they know I'm being paid to be there whereas the, the the all eyes are on the constituent who do you know what school do you kids go to what church do you go to haven't I seen you in the grocery store I mean it's it's really because they often in Texas certainly in the state legislators spend most of their time at home right our sessions are only you know in the in every other year so you know in, in the odd numbered years so 
there's a good chance that you geographically have them at home, so to speak. So this is a really important time between now and 2025, which is when the next session, to make sure now there will be an election, right? We have an election. We'll have an election coming up in November of 24. That will impact you know, what's going to be happening in the next session, which is 2025. Our state representatives are elected every two years. They're always running, right? I mean, well, you're serving, and then you're running, and then you're serving, and you're running. So there's a special attention they're giving to their constituents when they're running. Um, and a lot of, I mean, you'll, you probably get emails already. I certainly do too. That's like, you know, I've got a, a coffee meeting or we've got a happy hour. Come and meet your legislator. A lot of them host their own events. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you're going or make sure that you're sending somebody from your organization just so they start. I mean, it seems sort of funny. I, I know I've walked into offices before state offices and somebody will say, oh, the arts lady's here, the arts lady's here, right? And I don't care if they remember my name, but um, the fact that they're they're like, this is good, uh-huh. right? Because she's always bringing, and this is like good, she's bringing good stories, she's bringing pretty things, she's yeah. bringing important work, and she's also challenging you, like we can do better, or we need more, and this is why we need more. I feel like there really has been a trajectory over the past, let's just say about 10 years of people um, recognizing, and by people I mean like legislators or people who are kind of deciding larger policies or funding, realizing that arts really are things that are demanded by the community, that do good in the community, that improve quality of life. Like we've always kind of known this, but I feel like over the past couple of years, and maybe part of it is COVID or, you know, just having to go without it for a while or having to go without it in person. Uh, But we've come around to that way of thinking and some of the policies reflecting that. I want to ask you in that regard, how have you seen things change since you started with uh, Texans for the Arts in 2013? Like, how have you seen policy change? How have the people that you've interacted with, you know, on the lobbying side or the advocacy side, how have they changed their approach uh, to what you're bringing to them? What's the environment been like from 2013 to now? For a variety of reasons, it seems like our <laughs> – and I, COVID obviously played something into this. It feels like there's there's a, a more challenging environment that we're actually working in when I'm talking at the state level. But that's also kind of opened the door to really support this issue that the arts matter in – more and more people are recognizing these kind of social justice issues along with, again, what you mentioned earlier, health, education, transportation, housing. That, at least to me, I, I, mean, I know I'm living and working in this milieu, but I feel like there's a lot more of that conversation happening. And there, there is a recognition that actually the arts is re- do, really does impact things that they, they meaning the decision makers, find important. Um, I've actually never met a legislator who doesn't find value in the arts. The primary difference politically may be do they believe that public resources should be used for the arts or should that be handled by private philanthropy? Um, and I often say, and I know this is sort of getting into the mechanical weeds, but um, – I, there's a mandate in public funding. So our state arts agency, which is the Texas Commission on the Arts, is, is mandated to get these funds out. And they do get funds out to all of the Senate districts, and they get it out to about two th- or three-quarters about of the House districts. And that's depending on there have to be arts organizations that qualify. Yeah. In, 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 sometimes in, there actually aren't in Sometimes there certain, aren't in yeah. some of the more, or in the more rural communities. And But there's an absolute commitment to doing that and that's something with that's one of the reasons why we want to you know secure more resources for that so 
I, I do feel, I mean, I think 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, people were not talking about the arts in this intersection mm-hmm. so much. Yet that's really fascinating, and it also embraces a much broader audience than arts for art's sake. And there's still room in our lives for arts for art's sake, but I find what's, you know, I find it really exciting to work with housing people or really exciting to be working with uh, travel and tourism people uh, or people working in these fields because it's often opening up for them for the very first time as well um, to go to a conference and, you know, a tourism conference and to be talking about arts advocacy. What does that mean? You know, invited historically for, you know, a number of different times of presentations. And I find that we were recently at a creative, like creative placemaking and the role that placemaking and placekeeping can um, play a role in that. So um, I, I hope it's not just me because I work in the arts that, that feel this kind of changing uh, pulse, but I think that that's important. The other thing is that we, we do get a lot of leverage and latitude out of the economic impact of the arts. And sometimes storytelling tells a better story than numbers, and some legislators are looking for numbers. I usually find legislators looking for stories about, oh, this is how I was impacted by this or my family or children were impacted because that's actually – those kind of go straight to the heart and soul and you see that and you experience it. Mm -hmm. But numbers also matter and the arts are a huge part of the economy. Mm -hmm. And um, so we don't want to necessarily dwell on that. There are legislators who are like, yeah, this is good for business. It's not only good because we're generating sales tax or we're – but it's – it's great in the sense that we are attracting tourists, but we're also creating a community space where businesses are more likely to want to move in and, you know, anchor themselves. So, you know, the the urban myth about, you know, businesses and corporations making decisions to not move to Texas because they didn't have arts and culture. And these were conversations that were having were happening in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, bef- quite, a, quite a ways back. But there were communities that were like looking and saying, I'm, I'm not moving here because – what are the families going to do? What you know, the education they want education and they want parks and they want libraries and they want a good quality of life. But increasingly, there's a sense that arts and creativity are really putting our communities on the map and opening doors for what you know the business world really wants to see. So, I mean, economics is is hugely important in the decision making. Um, but again, it's just one part of of the story and you know there's nothing that beats a good story about the you know the impact of the arts. You know, I feel like I've occasionally heard from artists who uh, apply for grants and are like why do I need to like talk about the economic impact? And it's I, I feel like oftentimes it's they may not realize that it's because of that hot tax and it's because where that money's coming from and the money is coming from tourism and it's in theory, designed to go back into tourism in some way, shape, or form, which in this case, it's through giving artists individual grants. And I think that just the the raising of awareness about why why some uh, why some grants are written a certain way, because that's a lot of people's first introduction into this also, right? They're not necessarily emailing their legislators or they're they're applying for grants. And if you just apply for those cold and don't necessarily understand where this money's coming from, you may you may kind of be taken aback a little bit by some of the questions that are asked because the questions are asked in order to justify 
to the powers that be how the money is being used in a way that is meant to be used for based on where it comes from, right? Yeah, one of the things that you do see on grants, at least grants from the Texas Commission on the Arts, is that one of the requirements when you get a grant is to write a letter of acknowledgement to your elected official, your state senator and your state representative. And that's a combination of one, without thinking about it, that's educating the artist, like, oh, I've got to do this? Why is this important? To as important for the legislator who's getting that letter going, oh, I remember voting on the budget. And oh, yeah, we did. We voted money for cultural districts or Arts Respond or Arts Create. So um, that I think that's that is important, um, and it's important for them. I, it makes me think back to 25 years ago when I served as the contract cultural contract dance panelist for the city of Austin. I did that for two years. I have no memory that I knew that the money that I was allocating or the team of us was allocating was hotel occupancy tax. Mm-hmm. Did it matter? I'm not sure, but it just it made me realize that there was a disconnect there. Again, this was years and years ago, but um, it made it made me aware that um, you know that people were not necessarily given that information that this is public money and what is the difference between a public investment and private philanthropy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of pieces of the pie that go into funding and no one funding source, unless you're underwritten by some unique foundation, you know, no one funding source is all of it. You have some earned income, you have corporate, you've got public, which is state, local, and federal, and then you've got, um, you know, individual giving, individual philanthropy. And individual philanthropy and foundations and corporations typically are a little more specific to a geographic area that they feel they serve. I mean, you may have statewide corporations who, who are dealing with that. Um, but so you, there's different different things that have an impact on how decisions are made, whether it's public or private philanthropy. And we need it all. You know, we need we need we need a balance of all of those. So, you know, whether we're meeting with member-based support organizations like Texans for the Arts as a membership-based organization, um, or we're talking about private philanthropy or foundations, which are you know go to a five hundred one c three charitable. So, um, yeah, I, I just it's to me, I often get into the weeds, you know, in the nitty gritty about you know Texas tax code and the hotel occupancy tax or the appropriations process for public funding for the Texas Commission on the Arts. I get excited about that uh, and and the, and, the, and it doesn't sound very exciting to a lot of people but that's that's those are the tools and the resources that we have mm-hmm. um, I will say the other thing we do is I get to get that I'm part of a national network of state arts advocacy organizations it's called the creative states coalition and we convene monthly and then we have an annual gathering in person as well and so there's a lot of expert what are you doing in this state or that state and so we're we're picking up cues on you know, okay, we're, we're working with the TCA, we're working with hotel tax, what might be another way? We've got a year and a half, what might be other ways that we can um, secure? One year we were successful getting an additional appropriation for arts in the military programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that was a very targeted, specific ask. So, you know, do we look at things like that? Or do you look at policy around uh, making this up? Um, you know, workforce development, are there ways about funding the arts through some kind of other agency we're not even thinking about? Healthcare. I mean, there are there ways that we might look at partnering with other um, other state agencies around funding. Then there's arts education, of course, which Texas Cultural Trust does. We work in partnership with them, and they really lead the way for arts education. We're there in the background, saying we'll testify, we'll support, we'll do whatever you need. Um, but you know, that's these are all really important parts of the mix. 
Before we uh, finish up, I want to ask about the other big accomplishment that came out of the 88th legislative session that just closed, um, the increased appropriations for the Texas Commission on the Arts. Will you tell us about that and what that means and if you have any insight as to how or why that happened this go around? Well, yes, I'd love to. And I'd love to give a huge applause to the Texas Commission on the Arts for the hard work Dr. Gary Gibbs uh, gives and his tremendous staff to process all of the, you know, the grants and to and to lead the way in terms of as the state agencies and their vision for, um, you know, equity and distribution all across the state. Um, every every session, a um, uh, this state agencies are required by the state to generate a budget, right? The budget that they will be presenting, and they the state government can provide restrictions. You can ask for level funding, or you can ask for a little bit more, or you have to give us a five percent cut, kind of depending on the overall economy, as determined by the comptroller. Um, and this particular session, there, they knew that there would be level funding from last year, so they could ask for what's called an exceptional item. And they, uh, they mean, meaning the TCA, the Texas Commission on the Arts, they asked for an exceptional item of $8 million, and $5 million would be for cultural district program, and $3 million would be for um, the Arts Respond and Arts Create, the kind of foundational grant program. And this was what, what is above and beyond, uh, I guess, what you sort of what I call think about is the base, it would, which would have been the equivalent of last year's budget. So it was a roller coaster, really, through the legislature because there's a House process and there's a Senate process, and went through the House process with flying colors, and it got reduced in the Senate. So we spent a lot of time as advocates and lobbyists and um, trying to navigate and get the Senate back. It actually never went back until they have what's called a conference committee. Um, and with a conference committee, and there's a lot of advocacy and lobbying that's happening around, um, you know, key decision makers in the Senate, key decision makers in the in the House, and then key decision makers in the, um, in the actual conference committee. And you don't know what it's going to be until it is ultimately released from the conference committee. And it moved back up to the entire eight million, and it's so it's the first time in the in the history of the agency that they got the full full value of the exceptional items. So what's really important from our perspective as well is that that is on top of the organization's base budget. So the budget is really growing. Um, it's not just like you've got an extra one this year and you've got to go back and battle for it again next year. So um, so it's very exciting news for the agency. It's validating that um, people are beginning to recognize more. I mean, I really think that it is a it's a move that people are recognizing that the arts are truly important. What we experienced this year, it, it gave me hope. It gave me, um, I mean, I'm, look, I'm looking forward to thinking about next session and strategies and new ways to explore not only expanding the base of the TCA, which is fundamentally important, it is our state arts agency and deserves to be more fully funded, but to also just make sure that we are fully exploring these other avenues, these other agencies, other ways that we can continue to not just get additional resources, but change mindsets um, and really have people start to make decisions that the arts are fundamental and core values for this work that we're doing. And um, they're not extra. We know they're not extra. And I, I mean, the two words that are that keep rising to the top for me are essential and transformative. And we've experienced both of that, both through COVID and now out of COVID. Um, they really make the ultimate difference in the quality of life in our communities for all of our citizens. It's a very 
a high goal to think we can touch all of our citizens, but there's no reason we shouldn't be working on that and helping develop the tools that we have. Um, so excited about, oh, here it is, we're just catching our breath after the 88 session, but our minds are already churning about, you know, what worked, what didn't work. Here we have some of these really important contributions. We passed the hot bill. We've got more TCA funding. More TCA funding means more money to your communities across your state. And we do a lot of reinforcing with legislators around that as well. So speaking of the next session of the 89th session, which is happening two years from now, you're actually uh, later this fall going to be stepping down from the Texas for the Arts. Of course, you're going to be around. I can't see you stopping advocacy. Um, but you have a deputy who's going to be taking over for you. What do you kind of, I, I know you can't put any words in his mouth. I'm sure we'll talk to him at some point. But what do you kind of see for the future? Like, what are you envisioning? Well, yes, I am stepping down on November 1st. And uh, I have been in this job. I will have been in this job by a full 10 years really excited of the growth that we've experienced, one, as an organization, but more importantly, what I really do see outside. When we started this, the TCA's budget, as an example, was $3.9 million. It is now over $15 million. Um, that is significant growth. There are an increase in communities that are using hotel tax. There's just so much more happening conversationally. Um, but I'm also, I'm ready to transition out and give the next generation of arts leaders the floor. I am not going away. I don't, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't go quietly. Um, I'm going to be active. I live about 30 minutes away from the Capitol. I will testify. I will, um, I'm passionate about this work, but I think it's really important to give fresh blood. Um, Chris Kiley was my, is my associate director, and I had the privilege of meeting him two months into my job in November of 2020, no, 2013, excuse me, and um, really sort of grooming. I mean, I learned from him. He learns from me, and he's been part of this team for seven years, and I just, uh, I mean, an active part of the, of the team as an independent contractor and, again, then becoming now associate director for the past two years. So he is um, very well poised in terms of, you know, vision, and we've just completed a strategic plan, and he's been very engaged, and that was very engaged in the work we did in the legislature. So, yes, I'm around, and I'll be watching, and I'll probably be getting involved in other boards, and I'm not going to sit still, um, but I'm really excited about just new energy, and uh, we have eight new board members coming on board. We have a 40-member board, and I'm excited about that opportunity and the just new energy and new thinking and opening up possibilities. So um, I'm really excited. Um, I'm excited to pass the torch. And um, But again, I, I'm probably on speed dial, and uh, he's going to be great. Chris is going to be a great asset to the state, and I'm, I'm really excited. I'm, and I think, you know, everybody else is really excited as well. So it's, it's a transition that's, um, that's really timely. And, and um, I'm not stepping out until November 1st, and there's a lot of time between now and then just in terms of the po what policies we're thinking about, uh, you know, doing surveys, doing some of our regional meetings, and – there's, there's a lot we'll get done, and with me stepping away, just it frees up for um, you know, more space and fresh ideas as well. I think that's a great place to leave it. And thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Um, 
if there is anyone listening who wants to learn more, they can obviously go to Texans for the Arts website. Um, you all have infographics and little explanatory pages on there. Uh, can, can they get in touch with the organization? Yes, yes. I mean, the best way to get in touch is through um, email or go to our website and and sign up for our newsletter because we do a newsletter. It's usually about two times a year. We did them more frequently during the session. Um, or you can write info at texansforthearts.com or www.tectonsforthearts.com. Um, electronically is always sort of better to reach us. But uh, that's, yeah, we would love it if you get involved. We are a membership, again, supported organization, and that's that's what powers us and uh, makes us have a better impact. And we need you, too. So, um, again, hopefully people aren't going like, should I get involved? It's like, I can't wait to get involved, and we can't wait to have you. For you listening, uh Check out what's happening in your communities. Check out Glass Tire's event listings. We will be back in two weeks with another podcast. And until then, stay cool and go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2023.